A great man once said, do not accept no for an answer, especially from yourself. Setbacks are ramps, not road bumps. Well, I'm talking to a great man today. I'm talking with Mick Ebeling. Uh, this guy's phenomenal. Um, a lot of you folks out there probably uh, have read his book, uh, Not Impossible. Uh, Mick was recently honored as one of the top most 50 creative people in 2014. And uh, he also acquired the 2014 Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award. Uh, Mick is a film, television, commercial producer, a philanthropist, a technology trailblazer, an author, an entrepreneur, and a public speaker. Um, well, Mick has got a great book. Like I said, Not Impossible. Uh, this came out uh, recently, and I was immediately drawn to a couple of the stories in his book. But I'm going to let Mick explain. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to let Mick explain what Not Impossible is, what his organization does, and then I'll get into some questions. Good morning. How you doing, Bud? Good morning. How are you? I'm I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so, Not Impossible is a uh, Let's see, where does one begin? And Not Impossible started back in 2008 when I was exposed to what I thought was an absurd situation. And that was uh, a man who was completely paralyzed, was unable to communicate or draw or do anything because he did not have the money or the insurance to afford what I called a Stephen Hawking device a device that allows you to talk through your eyes. Mm -hmm. And so I, when I realized that, you know, when I was exposed to this, I realized, wait a second, that's, that's not really, that's not the way that life should work. It shouldn't really be a situation where you are, your freedom of expression or mobility or what have you is governed by how much money your mom and dad makes or how much money you make. Mm -hmm. And so I set off to help him and create a device that allowed him to do it, but allowed him to do it for an affordable price. So we created a device called the iWriter, and that is the low-cost ocular recognition device that allows people to allow this particular artist to draw again using only his eyes. And it was made with a pair of glasses, sunglasses, from the Venice Beach Boardwalk for about 8 bucks, mm. a coat hanger, free, mm. some zip ties and duct tape, uh, and a web camera that actually we mounted to the end of the coat hanger that we duct taped to the side of the glasses, and that tracked his pupil. And then we wrote some some code, and that translated that into the script that would appear on the computer screen. So we did that. It was an incredible experience. Tempt, the artist, drew again, and that was it. We didn't really have any great expectation after that, but what ended up ensuing was Time Magazine's top 50 inventions of 2010, and uh, eight Gizmodo called us eight incredible health inventions that transform lives, and I did TED Talks, and, all, and now part of the permanent collection at the MoMA, and we kind of said, what the heck? What did we just do? <laughs> and that was, that, was the, that was the proverbial drop in the bucket that caused the tidal wave. Um, we then, I went on to create Not Impossible Labs out of that, because Throughout the process of creating the iWriter, I kept saying to the, to the team of brilliant programmers that were working with me here at the house, wait a second, why is that impossible? We've got to make that not impossible. Why is that impossible? 
we got to make that not impossible and it just stuck hmm. so the the that was the kind of the origin of the company and now our mandate is technology for the sake of humanity we go out and we look to hack and create and break open existing pieces of technology and then re-solder them or glue them back together so that they accomplish a fundamental human and, and social need. Hmm. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a chef deconstructing a, a recipe. Uh, you break it down, come up with new seasonings, different ways, times, temperatures, things like that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and I think what that um, comment really... Uh, praise upon is this the philosophy that all of the world's solu- all of the solutions to the world's problems already exist mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so every flavor that you can imagine already exists it's a question of if you want new flavors you got to put them together in interesting and unique ways right cook them at different temperatures mm-hmm. freeze them bake them deconstruct them whatever you're going to do so it for us that's our that's our real ethos is that we know that every solution is out there. It's just a question of figuring out how to make it accessible and affordable to the people who need it. Well, but why why even do it? I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, you, you saw a need and you said to yourself, this isn't right. Um, what's driving that, that this isn't right thing? I mean, who are you uh, or why did you take on this? Why did you take this on? I mean, wh- what are you? What are you all about, man? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, who, the, who, who the hell am I? Who the hell are uh, you? <laughs> there's a couple philosophers who've asked that question as well. Um, I just, you know what? I I, I hate the word no. I really do. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I, I write about in the book is this thing called the revolution against the absurd. And sometimes when you see things, and as a human, you relate to it for whatever reason. You know, with, with Temp, he, his brother and his father were sitting there telling me that they needed a device. And I'm a father and I'm a brother. Mm-hmm. And so it just it spoke to me. So the things that I get attracted to right now are things that I feel like, one, are absurd, and two, that speak to me emotionally. And, but the, the key part of your question is, who am I? Mm-hmm. I'm just an average dude. And the whole point of the book, the whole point of Non Impossible, the whole point of this revolution we're starting, we, we want to start, is that an army of average dudes or dudettes can change the world, right? right. And Margaret Mead has a wonderful quote about that. Right. And it's just a question of deciding that you're going to do something about it, mm. grand or small. We don't have to have the net worth of Warren Buffett's or Bill Gates. Maybe we do if we're going to go try to tackle malaria, but there are so many other problems out there that are far more accessible that we can tackle as, a, as, as an individual human being. So, so that's, that's who I am. I look at things and I say, you know, that's absurd. Let's change it. And one of my main missions, though, right now, and especially in light of, of this particular interview with you, is that we're trying to do this not as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. trying to do this in a way that actually creates a sustainable model for change to happen in the world and for real real change to happen so that everybody benefits. And the way we do that, quite simply, is we're st- I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And so we tell the stories of what we're doing in really compelling and powerful ways. And the incredible and brilliant and beautiful irony of that is the story tells what we did 
and that has the value. So that's what the brands and the corporations are buying because they need content out there that actually, you know, gets clicks and attracts viewers and, and helps to kind of push their brand forward. But at the same, so they take the stories we tell and they propel them across all their media channels and all of the different places that they use to get their messages out. And by doing that, because the technology that we made is low cost or free or open source or accessible, it then helps to promote the, de- the solution or the device that we created. So you've got this wonderful little cycle going on where the brand wins because they want to tell the story. We tell a beautiful story, so the brand wants to really push it. The more it gets pushed, the more people are exposed to the solution, so more people are helped. And then, you know, hit repeat. Once yeah, the record's over, go back to the beginning and hit repeat. Right. You know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the word cost a couple seconds ago. And, and uh, okay, my background, um, I was a corpsman during the service in the early 70s. Um, my, I grew up back east. My father was an uh, architect and then a gallery uh, artist, uh, watercolor. He went blind. He kept painting, okay? Um, and he painted till he died. He had bilateral macular degeneration, couldn't see crap on the canvas, but he had been painting so long that he, he knew what to do and where to put it. Mom would stand over his shoulder and say, hey, Jackie, you know, do the sky a little bit more blue or the foreground needs a little of this or that. But my father went from an Andrew Wise style to a, uh, an impressionistic style over his career. Okay, right. Right. So your story about Temp Kwan um, – I spent some time in Southern California. I love graffiti. I love art. Um, I think that everybody's got something in them to, uh, 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 which which enables these people to tell their stories. Anyway, he was a brilliant artist, and um, I had an uncle that had Lou Gehrig's, and uh, then his oh. wife had Lou Gehrig's. So I watched Uncle Ralph and Barbara deteriorate over the years. Right. Barbara was a package designer uh, during the uh, 70s. She was, she was really good. But Lou Gehrig's just, you know, put her in a wheelchair. And um, so that story really hit home with me. But I'm, I'm going to tell you something, man. Project Daniel, I cried my freaking eyes out because <laughs> – well, I did. And I'm not afraid to say this because um, – I consider myself a humanitarian. I've been looking, I've been walking this earth for 61 years trying to find truth, trying to find my uh, avenue to express and to touch people. And so when I read about Daniel, uh, Project Daniel in, in the Sudan, uh, I, I, it was amazing. Uh, please tell me, t- tell our audience a little bit about Project Daniel because uh, as we all know, um, because of this, uh, because of the crap that's been going on for decades uh, in in Africa and other countries, um, millions, hundreds of thousands, millions of children are are just getting uh, killed, and they're and they're, they're just their lives are 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 gone at this point. You know, these poor kids have no legs, no arms. I mean, families are lost. Um, just horrible, horrible, horrible. But you came up with a need, uh, and I, you came up with a solution for a need. You saw something, and you, you must have seen something when you started reading or being more aware about what was going on there. So how did Daniel come in? And uh, I, I read the story on how you got there. You're a brave mother, uh, son of a gun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, 
but it, it, it's 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 just heartwarming and it's fascinating. And um, uh, I want to get to cost after you talk a little bit about Daniel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Daniel happened because I was uh, at a dinner mm-hmm. with a friend, and mm-hmm. he mentioned this doctor named Doctor Tom Katana. Mm-hmm. Uh, came home, did what a lot of people do when they hear something at, at you know at work or the park or wherever that came home and researched him which went online it's eleven thirty at night a couple glasses of wine at dinner came home opened up the computer got a glass of water the whole house is asleep mm-hmm. kids wife everybody mm-hmm. and uh, i went on and it was just one of those stories where it just hit you in the gut yeah. and the story was about this doctor who's basically alone in the nuba mountains and within a 1500 mile radius he's the closest doctor mm-hmm. and he's taking care of these people that are being bombed by their president President Bashir, the only uh, person who's currently in power who has international war crimes against him. And he, this Bashir guy regularly runs these missions of these bombing missions over bazaars, schools, churches, public areas, and he just, and villages. And he tries to basically, it's a tried and true military tactic. He tries to bomb these people, his own people, out of this region because he's, for whatever reason, because he's a racist. He tries to bomb these people, get them to leave so that his troops can move in and just claim the space. Right? right? So right. drive them out, less fighting. So one of the things that Dr. Tom, as I'm reading this, I'm like, holy cow, I didn't, I didn't even know about this. You know, we, I think as Americans, are, are geographically deficient. So knowing what's going on in the far corners of the world sometimes is, is not our, our strong suit. So as I'm reading this article, I'm learning about what's going on over there, and I'm learning about this amazing guy, and he talks about how much he hates to perform amputations. And one story in particular was about a young boy named Daniel who was out tending his family's herd, some goats and cows, and the, bomber, the, the bombs started to come. And you can hear the bombers coming miles away. There's these big, huge, old Russian planes called Antonovs, big turboprops. So what everybody does is they jump into foxholes or get under, you know, get into cover. And the bombs are very crude. They're 55-gallon drums filled with jet fuel and shrapnel. Jesus Christ. And what they do is they, they roll them out, it hits the ground, and it sprays, sprays shrapnel everywhere. So if you're in a foxhole or in some kind of cover, then you're fine. But if you're not, you're not fine. So Daniel was out in an open field. The bombs were coming. He looked for a place to go. He didn't have any place to go, so he jumped behind a tree, wrapped his arms around a tree to protect him. The bomb ended up going, uh, blowing up not far from him. The tree protected his body, but the shrapnel hit his arms that were wrapped around the other side of the tree, right. and it blew his arms off. Right. So now you have this armless boy in Africa. It's hard enough to, be able to survive in Sudan, let alone be now an armless boy in Sudan. So he made his way. You know, Some people took him to Dr. Tom. Dr. Tom stitched him up saved his life and when daniel woke up he said if i could die i would because now i'm going to be such a burden to my family and that was the moment you know 11 something at night i read that one line and as i'm reading that i'm basically looking down the hallway where my three boys sleep and i couldn't imagine one of my three boys waking up and saying that like i'm going to be such a pain in the ass to mom and dad now I, i wish i was dead so that, to me, was part of this process that I have, which is you commit, and then you figure out how the hell you're going to pull it off. That's what I did on the iWriter, so I'm doing a Project Daniel, and that's what we try to do on, on all of the initiatives. Once we see that something needs to be changed, 
you decide you're going to change it, and then you figure out how you're going to change it. Mm-hmm. And that commitment, I think, is what propels us forward. And quite frankly, that it's a bit brash and brave, but I think it's what gets us over. It gets us to be able to jump to jump the shark and get to the other side because we're not getting tied down with bureaucracy or or logic, God forbid, <laughs> or or philosophy or or science. Quite frankly, we just say we have to change this, and what are we going to do? So that's that. That was the moment that I knew I had to do something for Daniel, and that was on July thir- July eleventh, two thousand thirteen. Mm-hmm. And I put together a team. We I brought in a guy named Richard Van Asse, who was one of the essentially at the time he was the guy who was making three D uh, prosthetic hands. I said, hey, let's make a three D prosthetic arm. We made one for Dan. He taught me how to do it. I'd never 3D printed before. Mm. I went to Sudan and found Daniel, which was like finding a needle in a haystack. And on November 11th, a scant four months after I read that article in my house, uh, Daniel fed himself for the first time in two years since losing his arms with a 3D printed prosthetic arm that I had made for him. Must have opened your soul up, man. It It was incredible. You, You know what was... You know what was incredible? Uh, what was incredible was just seeing this boy who is just, he's just a boy, you know? He's just a boy. Right. He's an armless boy, but he's just a boy. Right. And all the stuff that he did with his friends and kind of how he acted, everything about him was was just like my kids act, just like any kids act. Right. And that was the thing that made it even more special for me, was just giving this kid you know, an opportunity, one, to just know someone cares about him, but a chance to be able to regain some independence. Hmm. Hmm. You know, part of that, um, part of that commitment and then figure out how um, must come from part of your career, being a producer. Um, I was in advertising for years, and, you know, when we had a big client, uh, it's like, yeah, sure, we can do that. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. We didn't know how to do it. But, yeah, you, exactly. you, commit, <laughs> you commit because your ass is on the line, you know, money and everything else. But you committed uh, a little bit differently. Uh, it sounds like you're, you know, the, the core, uh, your core is, uh, has some substance to it and some uh, – some empathy, which uh, which is fascinating, you know. I um, you know we all read about prosthesis, and we're looking at the veterans coming back, and we always hear how how expensive it is, you know, and blah blah blah. But you've proven that uh, you know we can we can do things without the price tag. Um, uh, but but let me let me ask you one question. When I read uh, when I read the story um I, I i the first thing came to my head was this guy has never been there i mean is there freaking electricity out there is is you know i mean how are you gonna how are you gonna protect everything i mean you you basically went there and and just put it together right i mean you didn't plan this out you didn't have you know the government help you set up electricity and all this crap did you i mean you basically went and 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 did what you had to do to to do what you had to do, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's that's insane. <laughs> you know, I think I think one of the things that there was a, and in the book I, I, I talk a little bit about this. But after we did the iWriter, we made a documentary about it, mm-hmm. and the documentary premiered in Park City, and it was a sold out show, and you know, standing ovation, everybody was psyched. And afterwards, this group of guys came up to us afterwards and said, hey, we love the film, man, love the film. Mm. Uh, we'd love to invite you to a party. Come on up to our party tomorrow night up in the mountains. So, you know, 
go up to this this sweet cabin up in the mountains, and we go in and we grab our our classic, you know, red our red cups, fill it full of booze, and mm-hmm. we're sitting there, and these guys see us, and they come over, and they said, "Hey, what's going on? Hey, we just wanted to glad you guys can make it. You know, we've been talking about your film ever since." We saw it yesterday, and we've come to a conclusion. We want to share it with you. And I said, uh, "Yeah, awesome. What, what do you, what do you, what, what's your conclusion?" They said, "We've concluded that if you had any effing clue how hard it was to do what you did, you would have never done it in the first place." Hmm. And I was sitting there with my wife, and we kind of looked at each other and said, "Bullshit." Thank you. I think. <laughs> I think I said thank you. And they said, no, no. What it's made us realize is that we're programmers. We're a bunch of programmers, and we're going to go back, and we're going to look at all the projects that we kicked to the curb because we were smart, and we knew what could and couldn't be done. Hmm. And we're going to look at it essentially through your eyes, you know, hmm. <laughs> essentially through your, through your dumbass eyes, you know what I mean? Through your eye And I think that that's kind of the way we hmm. go about this is – there's so many reasons why we should not be able to do the things that we're doing right now. And the, and the projects that we have queued up are just mind-bending right now, for me even. But it's because we don't really pay attention to what we should and shouldn't do. We just do what we know we have to do yeah. and what should be done. And I think that's the distinction for us. Yeah. And I think it does come from being a producer because you're just constantly being delivered impossible tasks and you just have to very flippantly and confidently go, yeah, sure, anything else? Yeah. Anything else you want? Exactly. And then you go, shit, how do I do this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. I, I, I love this. I love this story. All right, now what about cost? Um, you've, you've proven that you can do a prosthetic hand or an arm at, you know, a few hundred bucks or whatever. So why the hell does it cost so damn much money to fit our veterans? and to fit other people that need prosthesis. It's, it's all bureaucracy, <laughs> and I think that's one of the things, if you, from, from prosthetics to the ocular recognition software right. to lots of things. You've got supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why, that's why we largely are not an IP play with the things that we create. We're not trying to get the corner on the market for ocular recognition technology, mm-hmm. and we're not trying to get the corner of the market on 3D-printed prosthetics. Why? That's, that's, a, that's a horrible business plan to go after something like that. <laughs> you have the masses who have, have been given the keys to the kingdom with 3D printers right now. They can print everything, and it's a whole other conversation to talk about what that's going to do to the future taxation models of our country and to, to societies in general. Mm-hmm. But that's a, for a different show. The, the point is, is you need to, if you continue to empower those people with the knowledge and you continue to empower those people with the ability, but the story is essentially the valuable asset, that, that's kind of how we've created the distinction. That, that's, what our, that's what our model is, and that's what we're trying to do different. And been doing it so far so good. Yeah, my, my, one thing that always pops up when I read stories like this is, is the first thing is, you know, who cares? Um, but I know personally... Um, living on this earth for the time I have been that, that there are a shitload of people out there who really do care and, but they don't have resources. Um, they may have ideas, but don't have the money. Um, they may have the money, but not ideas. And I I think guys like you, uh, uh, slap, you know, slap our faces Every now and then, uh, and, you know, it's kind of a wake-up thing. It's like, hey, man, you know, 
Um, you know, one thing in advertising you've learned and I've learned is nothing's new. We just do it differently. Okay. Um, how to sell well, something I think, and to I think somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's the distinction, is, and that's probably a key point of the message yes. uh, at Non Impossible and at, you know, with the book and all the stories we're telling, is that I, I'm not special. In fact, I'm far from special. I am just a guy who maybe, is a, maybe has a slight higher degree of pig-headedness <laughs> you know, or, uh, or stupidity, depending on the situation. But it's just a question of deciding to do it. And one of the things that we want our stories to uh, initiate is to remind people, and it's, it's a semantics thing, but we want our stories to remind people that they already have the permission to do this in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'm, not giving them, I'm not inspiring them to do something that they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. They already could do it. I'm just reminding them that they could do it. And we now, in the day of age that we live in, have so much access to information and technology and resources that it's phenomenal. I mean, go, go to the most developing nations in the world, and they've got cell phones, right? right? right, right, right. That cell phones that are more powerful than, and I'm probably bungling this up a little bit, but are more powerful than some of the computer systems that we, use, that we put on the Apollo missions to the moon. Right. So if that's the case, then that's a, pretty, that's a pretty amazing way to see the world and say, great, now how do we actually go out there and do some stuff? And how do we empower the army of people out there? I would say that, I would say that everybody in the world cares. Everybody in the world cares, but we're discouraged or disillusioned, or whatever, not, somehow deterred from going out there and doing something that we think we can do. Mm-hmm. So the easier that I make it in the stories that I tell, the more accessible the stories are. I'm like, well, that's not that complicated. Mm-hmm. That's not that, well, I guess that's not, I thought it would be harder. The more stories like that we tell, the more people that we're going to kind of ignite this army of people who can rebel against the absurd. Yeah. Uh, the only thing, uh, hang on. It's a studio phone. All right, I'll cut it out. But anyway, um, well, no, I get that, and I and I totally understand that. And if I, you know, if I were someone like you, I would probably, me personally, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll focus to third world countries. I'll, I'll focus on on uh, populations that are depressed and. Um, and the thing that scares me is, uh, you know, there there are um, <laughs> there are men running countries all over the world that could care less uh, about their own people. So that's going to be that's going to be a huge problem that I see. Is yes, you can you might be able to get the word out to the population, but but are we gonna are we gonna be able to work with these? Napoleonic complex little twits that have nothing but power and everything else that goes with it, because uh, there are some bad there's some bad people. I, you out know, there. You, you know what my quick answer is. Yes, sir. My quick answer is I don't care. Screw them. We don't need to work with them. Good. The people, the people will speak. Yeah. The the po- the the majority, the population, will will become 
will we'll always, I think, rule over the individuals when, when knowledge and information is shared. And right now, I think it's one of the most exciting things about living in today's world is that knowledge and information is becoming more and more uh, accessible for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You look at every dictator in the world, and the way that they're able to do that is by the prevention of what? Knowledge and information. Yeah. Yeah, news, look at North, news look education. At North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yep. Look at North Korea. Look at some of these these jackasses in in Africa. Look at some mm-hmm. of these people who are doing this. Mm-hmm. They do it. It's by and they use that to manipulate and and to instill fear. Well, the second you you take that away, you've got a different. It's a different game. And mm-hmm. so I think that's one of the things that not impossible we want to do is the more of these stories we tell, the more people that we get the word out to, the more people are like, well, wait a sec. You know, here, here's a story. Ready? Mm-hmm. We, we have a story on Not Impossible. You go to notimpossiblenow.com, mm-hmm. and you search for uh, the word. We have different stories about the death. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, one of the stories that I love is there's a there's a device that's being developed that allows people to, to hear, hear through their tongues. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was so, I. I saw that man. That was I was like what? <laughs> that that is. That is not impossible. So that if, if you can, and you don't have to have anybody in your family who's deaf. Right. You don't even have to have a tongue. You just have to say, "Holy cow!" Right. If that's possible, yeah. then what else is possible? Yeah. And that's those are the stories that we're trying to tell. So if you that's what that's what, if you go to non impossible now, mm-hmm. every story on that is there to kind of to kind of just that little poke in the side that said, "Hey, look, that's possible." Yeah. Hey, look, that's possible. Yeah. Hey, look at that! That one's possible. Oh, no. you know? And if we if we do that, then then you're talking about igniting a revolution of people that go, wait a second, yeah. I I don't need to wait for the insurance company. Yeah. I don't need to wait for this. I can go do something myself, and I can go help something, someone that I love or someone that I know myself. Yeah. Yeah. When I read that story, it blew me away because um, my background's uh, ear, nose, and throat as a as a medic. Um, as a corpsman uh, in the okay. early 70s. So I did head and neck surgery and that kind of stuff, uh, okay. trauma stuff. So so I learned, I actually taught the theory of hearing, and, and you know, the, cochle- the cochlear is a pretty sophisticated piece of machinery. And, um, you know, I, I love, you know, the technology that helps people hear, but but this was so this was so out of the norm it was like you got to be kidding me and yeah. you, you've got you know what's also great about your story is you you're not only inspiring other people uh, other think tanks other other groups to 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 come up with solutions like this but but i'm seeing some funding you know um, you got Colorado State working on this uh, on this device to hear through their tongues, and uh, I know Colorado State's big. They've got a huge alumni. They're able to to uh, get the money, you know, and um, so I see I see amazing things happening as as the people get together. The money will come because let's face it, without the money, you know, it's it's it is hard, not impossible, but hard to. Uh, to create something and yeah yes and no because i believe the the yes part is that money makes it easier Mm -hmm. but know that moore's law is alive and well today Mm -hmm. and at a certain point there's a break point so i totally agree with you that that you know Mm -hmm. when you're talking about 
things that require capital. And, and when you're really breaking some boundaries, that does require capital. But every day, every minute that goes by, technology doubles in speed and half, and half in price, right? right. So my, the theory of non-impossible is, and this is a fundamental premise to everything we do, hmm. there is nothing in this world that exists today that wasn't impossible first. Yeah, yeah. So if that's the case, not religious, there's no Scientology here, there's no, you know, Jim Jones going on, it's factual statistical data. Everything that you look around in the room that you're listening to this on right now, everything that surrounds you was impossible at one point. So if that's the case, then why should we feel that we have now, in the history of, of our world, we've now butted up against the one thing that is now impossible? That's the most narcissistic, humanistic way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So what I, the message of non-impossible is, okay, so truly everything will be possible. Yes. Statistically, that's been the case, so let's just make that assumption that it's going to be continuing in the future. It's a question is how fast can we make it happen? Right. So things might be expensive now, but, I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the concept that I could 3D print something in privacy in my own house that that was unattainable for the general consumer. You know, that's a computer. Just go go to laptops, you know, that the, the we would have laptops and tablets as such of a, a permanent installation in our society right now, in first world countries. That, was, that wasn't possible 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. more, a little more than that. But, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. uh, that, that to me is what gets really exciting is that, things that we butt up against now is that people will keep chip, chip, chipping away and there'll be some people that kind of give up and go to the side or, or, or move on. But that progress will continue and eventually those things will get cheaper and more accessible. Hmm. Do you have a, um, you, you must have a real good sense of people um, because I suspect that you get calls, requests from all kinds of people that want, that that have a little bit different agenda than you do, maybe maybe you know monetarily or whatever. So how do we keep how do we keep the snakes out of the grass, man? You know, I mean, uh, I, I know a lot of people that throw money at a, a lot of things, and so how how do you how do you pick your projects? It's just something that hits uh, hits at your heart. Yeah, or I think what? the the projects pick us to a large degree. Okay, um, you know where we'll be working on something and something will come across us or someone will approach us and mm. we're like, holy cow, that's amazing. We got to pursue that. Mm. So that's one way. Um, but the projects all have to start with the reason it has to, the, the person that it's going to be for and the reason that it needs to be done. So if we, if we keep that, that's what we, we try to keep in our, in our crosshairs. Why does this need to be done, and who is it going to be done for? And that's because our philosophy is help one, help many. If you can help one person, one paralyzed graffiti artist, one armless boy in Sudan, but then take that technology and give it away and, and amplify the message and proliferate around the world, then you can help many, many people. So that's how we gauge, our, that's how we gauge what we do. Help one, help many. Um, boy. I'd like to walk in your shoes someday, man. Uh, you, no, no, I'm serious. Um, Mick Ebling, a uh, great book, Not Impossible. Um, 
subtitle, The Art and Joy of Doing What Couldn't Be Done. And uh, this guy's proven it. Mick, I want to thank you for coming in today. Um, I'd love to get you on the on the air down the road, catch up with you, see what see what else is you know on your plate. Um, but um, it's 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 been a it's been really nice talking to you, man. You know, it's, it hasn't been absolutely. A, uh, I I appreciate it uh, absolutely, and would love to love to come back on the show. Um, let's fast forward about. Uh, you know, towards the end of this year, sure. we're working on some pretty amazing things that, uh, and I'll just give you a little sneak peek. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the punchline, which is we're going to create devices that help kids with cerebral palsy learn to walk again. Oh, not not walk for them, but learn to walk oh, again. My God. So why don't we talk, let's talk about that on the next time I'm on. All right. You got me, man. Huh, Thanks amazing. a lot, Nick. Thank I you very much. And, yeah, thank you very much. And, and tell your listeners definitely... Go check us out on notimpossible.com and notimpossiblenow.com and, and tell everybody about what we're up to because this is, this is how we go change the world. Yeah. Well, love to be a part of it, Mick. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.